If you're a real estate investor, you understand that the market cycles, and it's not about if, but when will we go through another market crash? Is your portfolio ready to weather that storm? In this episode, I talk with Danny Bator, a graduate of the 2008 market crash, who's here to tell us what he's seeing in the market today, how he survived 2008, and his big secret to surviving the next crash. I will warn you, the audio is a bit choppy at times due to some internet issues, but the value in this episode is 100% worth it. So stick it out and learn something incredible. But first, our intro. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors, welcome to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm sitting down with Danny Bator of simplydoit.net. Now, Danny has had over 18 years of real estate investing experience here in the U.S., and has worked in over 5,000 properties to help investors build strong real estate portfolios all across the country. Danny and his team help fill knowledge gaps that potential investors have to help educate them so they can make incredible financial decisions. Danny, we're so excited to have you here, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Fantastic. We're happy to have you here. Now, tell us just a little bit about you, your background, and your investing history. I've been in the business Personally, for about 20 years, I started investing as a young high-tech engineer, working from some high-tech company in Tel Aviv, Israel, buying properties. Bought my first property in 2002 in a little town called Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know if you probably never heard of it. That's right where I live. That was my ticket into this game. And that ticket was a really successful one. But the timing is the lucky aspect of it. I got lucky with the timing, but everything that led me to buy that property and many others after is what kind of brought me into this world of U.S. real estate. Now, you know, for the past 18 years, I've moved to the U.S. from Israel. I used to be in the Bay Area for many years, the San Francisco Bay Area, and now in Orange County, California. And so Phoenix is where I live now and have lived for maybe about six years now. What led you to the Phoenix, Arizona market? Did you see signs of it growing crazy like it has, or was there something else? Well, the signs were there, but I just follow some uh, advice, like someone like myself, and it suggested at the time that Phoenix was a good market. When I read about Phoenix, I you know all the indicators made perfect sense to me to follow and execute. So someone else pointed the direction, but I follow up and research myself. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people thought because I mean, Phoenix has developed so fast in just a few short years compared to other places, and so getting on that level would be insane. Do you still invest in the Phoenix area? I know you go all over the country, but are you? I did for many years. There was a period between the 2008 crash, pulled out, came back to Phoenix, maybe 2010-ish. Continue investing there quite heavily with investors for a few years, and I think around. 2013, 2014, the numbers didn't make sense to us. I know a lot of people were still going there, but we could utilize better returns elsewhere. So we kind of pulled out. I hope I'm going to have tour number three in Phoenix. I love, that's one of my favorite markets in the country for many reasons. I'm first of all, sucker for numbers and then sucker for other things. But Phoenix is challenging, not impossible, but very challenging. It's your favorite market, but it's a lot of other investors' favorite markets too. So it makes it tough. 
Tell me a little bit about that investing strategy. You know, you said that, hey, you had kind of exited the market a couple of years ago because maybe cap rates were compressing a little too much, or maybe you weren't getting the returns you were looking for. What type of investments do you like and do you pursue for your investors at simplydoit.net? Are you looking for heavy cash flow properties? Do you do quick fix and flips? Tell us a little bit about what kind of properties you like to acquire. I love boring real estate. For me, boring real estate means a nice house in a nice community, in a good school district, attracting good tenants that can pay the rent. That's for me, sings very loudly because myself and all my clients are remote investors. So when you're a remote investor, being remote, a lot of investors, from my experience, they're very much attracted to the cash flow. Like Almost always the strong cash flow comes in the form of, a, let's say, an older home, maybe a little bit of a crappy home, maybe a little bit of a crappy neighborhood, maybe a little bit of a challenging tenants. And if you have an appetite for that, but you understand that to digest it, it will have, a, I call it, the noise level in the system will be relatively high, right? Maybe turnover of tenants, issues with the house because it's older. That's normally what comes with the territory. There's nothing wrong with it. You just need to understand that there's a noise level comes with a return. I call it the ERI, the emotional return on investment. <laughs> I want that emotional aspect of it to be very quiet. My ideal scenario for myself and my clients is we have multiple properties, maybe in one or two or three or four different metros, and they do not generate a lot of noise in my life. They're very much in the background of my life. Now, it doesn't mean there's no noise, but the whole point is to meet the typical issues of vacancies, repairs, communication breakdowns with the property management and evictions, those things are the typical one you will see. I just want to see it less frequent present in our lives. So I like boring. So when you say a nice single family home, a nice, you know, like a B area, you know, in the suburb of, I don't know, Birmingham, Alabama, in a good suburb, I'm like, woohoo, I'm excited. If you yeah. say student housing next to the University of Texas, whatever, I'm like, no, no, no. That sounds too much for me, yeah. right? Boring is sexy to me. This is what I've heard. Hey, real estate's the color beige. It's boring, but yeah, you want yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Want. A lot of people, when they hear those types of criteria, they immediately think, oh, like class A properties, affluent areas, maybe the returns, like you said, aren't as much, but it comes with the trade-off. If you're going to go B or C class properties, higher returns, but you have more to deal with. What do you see as I guess being good benchmarks for returns, because a lot of people have that conception that those nicer areas, those class A properties typically don't have a ton of cash flow because they have more of that safety net and the prices just get bid so high that the cash flow maybe lacks a little bit. What do you see when you acquire these properties? Are you seeing good cash flow and how are you pulling that off? We are all as investors are very much attracted to the cash flow and the technically speaking or theoretically speaking, the higher, the better. High cash flow usually comes with another price, right? So I look at properties when I analyze properties. You know, it took me a few years to kind of come to that realization. I, I call it the three vectors or growth engines in a single investment. And none of them are, in my opinion, in those boring real estate I'm talking about, none of those three vectors is amazing. But combined, they are realistic cash flow. And I'm using the word realistic because when I analyze properties, we take into consideration all the costs, including vacancies, including management fees, et cetera. So we don't neglect or forget stuff. And I don't use it in a worst case scenario or best case scenario. I use it as a, what we call the realistic case scenario and being a little bit conservative. The way I phrase it, I call it a realistic case scenario. 
Then the realistic case scenario generates realistic cash flow. After years of doing it, I can tell you that when we analyze it using the Excel that we've created and built for you know the use of our investors, routinely I see that in a year or two after the property was purchased, when I ask my buyer, the investor, to compare the Excel from a year ago to now, most times they come back and say, you know, Danny, the cash flow is a little bit better. It's a 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month better, which is quite nice on not high cash flow. Rarely do I get someone who says it's outperforming, it's double the cash flow. And sometimes I do get people who say, you know, it's a little bit below what we expected, which is also a good thing. So if someone was expecting 200 and they're 150, I mean, that's reasonable. Even at 100, I would say that that would be reasonable. So one growth vector is the realistic cash flow which is the cash on cash return. The second one is appreciation. And I use that carefully as a 2008 crash survivor (laughs) or graduate. I use it carefully. I measure 4% average annual appreciation, not what the market did last year of 8%, 12%, 6%. I don't care about what it did. I'm just saying it's there. It's over time. It's part of it. I don't want to bank on it on one end or speculate. And I don't want to ignore it. By the way, appreciation right now, it's actually less than what the country is doing at 5%, but I'm okay with that. So I use 4% average annual appreciation, which appreciate on the price. And of course, if they have leverage, it amplifies. Absolutely. And the third, I use what I call the mortgage principal reduction. Every year, the cash flow that I talked about a minute ago factors in mortgage payments. In the mortgage payments, there is a principal portion, smaller at first few years, and slowly it goes up. When I factor that in, the actual principal reduction, this is actually real money in my house, not in my pocket. I don't feel it. I don't sense it. But if I come to sell it in three years, it's there. It's going to be accounted for. So when I use those three things, we get more than 10%, actually more than 15% average ROI compared to what we invested. And that's also what we invested. I look at the down payment, which is the majority of it. But closing costs, mortgage fees, and the expenses I have to get the house rent ready. Not just what I got it to purchase, but all the way to the point that it's rent ready. On average, gets us to around 15% ROI. No guarantees, no promises. I'm just using very careful kind of methodical approach. And I'm factoring a few things. So if you're buying cash, obviously one of those components is out, right? right? Just as an example. But if most of us are buying with leverage, Now, I think that most investors are just focused on the cash flow and then the houses that we are buying being A, B, or even C kind of areas, they typically generate $3,000 a year after everything, maybe $4,000, sometimes $2,500. So that's not a huge cash flow. And if you're focused on that cash flow, you're missing on the other parts, which are definitely part of the investment. I think they should be part of the formula. So cash flow is great, but it's not the only thing. Absolutely. And then, I mean, that doesn't even include tax benefits that are even some. Yeah, I'm not even now, talking about that. Yeah, right? absolutely. And some people now put those in their projections, but you're talking about true returns, and then your tax savings are on top of that. Now, you had mentioned about a 50% return on investment. Is that 15, 1, 5, right? 15, 1, 5. Yeah. Is that cash on cash or is that realized at sale? Do you typically have a whole period you like 10 years, five years? Combining of the three factors, right? The cash on cash, the appreciation, the little appreciation, and the uh, principal reduction, not just one of them. I don't get to 15% cash for cash. That would be pretty nice (laughs) on those type of property. My approach has always been, let's buy quality and let's hold it long-term. 
When you buy and boring, right? Again, boring. Boring, yeah. When you buy quality properties and hold it long term. And when I say long term, I would say five years or more, ideally 10 or more, and maybe even consider it like some sort of a retirement account, so to speak. You are hedging against the different downturn or things that are happening in the economy. So my assumption to my investors, like in the next 10 years, assume there's going to be a crash. Maybe not as horrific as the last one from 2008, but something statistically every 10 years, there should be some hiccup in the economy. You know what? Let's just ride it through. Let's just buy correctly, buy good starting position, and then just wait. Be patient. Real estate loves time. Give it time. It will work in your favor. Just be patient. And you had mentioned before, you know, a 2008 market cycle graduate, because that's somewhat of a rare experience because a lot of people were not able to wait it out and they really had to take big losses, took a lot of people out of the game. And that's been looming over so many investors, because like you said, we hear that all the time, the 10 year cycle, well, that was 2008. Now we're, you know, 2022, we're a little bit past that. So some people have been kind of on the fence and I haven't been in the game for nearly as long as you I've been about seven years. But even when I first got started, I heard that, hey, this is the top of the market. Don't buy anything right now. Everything's so expensive. It's going to crash. Then the next year, I heard the same thing. Then the next year, and now seven years later, I'm hearing that still now. So I'd love to get your insight on what you see as maybe some signs to look out for, or do you feel that we are truly now at the top? Are you still very active? Are you still being a little bit more conservative? What is your experience yeah. you about this moment? Absolutely. Let me start by saying that since 2004 until now, I don't remember a single period that we were not in a buying mode, a single period. So that means we're always buying. Whenever this happened, we're buying. I think the way I look at it is, first of all, you got to be disciplined. This is always true for investment. Discipline for me means set your criteria, make sure they're good criteria and not speculative. And just follow those criteria. So that means, do we buy everything that we could? No, we are still analyzing properties the same way or a similar way to what we were analyzing them a year ago or five years ago. And we are buying them after for analysis, quality and financial analysis. Then we make a determination, is it worth buying or not? And yes, prices have gone up and cash flow, you know, there's an erosion, although rents have gone up as well. So we're just practicing more discipline. And if it makes sense, we make an offer that makes sense to us. And many times we don't get it for whatever reason. So that's, for me, just a big numbers game in a sense that we are using multiple agents to submit multiple offers on a weekly basis. And statistically, maybe two years ago on every three offers that we will make, one will got accepted. Now we're probably on every seven or eight offers. We are not giving up on our analysis or parameters or kind of cutting corners, we are still doing it the same way. And if it makes sense, let's make an offer. We follow up on properties that are been sitting there for some time and we try to tackle that maybe we made an offer or the numbers didn't work two weeks ago and this property is still there in two or three weeks to this market. It's a very long period of time. Like it's like forever. So we come back with our offer again or we try you know, maybe a different offers and maybe the seller is now a little bit more acceptable. I don't go with the approach of low bowling. Nobody likes to be low bowled. Okay, they're asking for 225. The numbers do not work at 225, but they work at 210 or 215. All right, let's offer that. And if we don't get accepted, that's fine. Engagement is the most important thing with the seller. Engage. Yeah. Once you engage, the conversation switch from theoretical to more practical. 
And then maybe you get an opportunity to see what the seller's pain point. And if you understand that you can work with those pain points, if you can, there's an opening for you. But that requires some discipline, some good communication, and no ego, very professional. Absolutely. You've been through that market cycle. Are there things that you learned during that time that you're taking now into what you see in the market now? Are there any signs that we should be aware of? Or do you think that now we're kind of in this bubble that's got to burst because people are getting priced out so crazy? What's your opinion here? First of all, I don't see specific signs. I do feel the market is expensive, definitely, because I have been investing in real estate what we buy today for 250, 300,000, we used to buy 18 years ago for 100,000 or 120. So it's hard. For me, it feels like I'm used to a certain number and keep going up all the time, but that's just the reality. Luckily, the rents are also going up with it. So it helps with the analysis. The main thing I emphasize to myself and my investor, I think it's probably the most important take if that's investment strategy or niche you're looking for is I always look at a single investment as made or based on, let's just call it 25 important decisions, not critical, but not tiny insignificant one. I call them mid-size you know, importance. For example, the location, the price, the cash flow, but also the market, the metro, and not just the neighborhood and who will manage it and how do we analyze it. Now, if we have about 25 important decisions, and obviously we're not going to know exactly what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years. And let's say out of those 25 Seven of those decisions did not materialize as we expected. We thought the market would grow by 5% a year, and it just ended up going up at 2.5% a year. So first of all, when I have seven decisions out of 25 that didn't materialize properly, my foundation has still 18 posts on those decisions. And the other thing, it doesn't mean that all those seven completely failed. Maybe they just not materialized the same way. So it's not 5% appreciation. It only did 25 That's not a catastrophe. Just not as good. So all those minimums and like small decisions are helping me make a good decision altogether. And we exercise those elements or decisions or multiple decisions on every single property. It's not like we blindly buy just because we have a good feel. No, there's no such thing. I don't trust myself after 5,000 properties with a good feel. Because of like we talked about with market cycles and people kind of feeling, hey, the market's really expensive right now. It has to crash around the corner. What steps have you taken or what advice do you have for investors to help protect themselves against the next crash, which we know one will come eventually? What's the strategy, I guess, to prepare for that storm? Yeah, very good question. I would say don't follow the herd. So the herd is running. And if you're running with the herd, you may be okay and you may not succeed. I never loved running to certain parts of the country just because the herd was going there. For me, it's like, okay, here's a metro. Let's examine it. Let's look at it and let's consider it. It has to follow certain guidelines, you know, in order for me to go there. And if it doesn't, I'm not interested. So that's, again, the discipline side of it. So don't follow the herd just because the herd is all going to, I don't know where they're going today, I don't know, Boise. Let's use Boise as an example. So a lot of people like Boise. So is it a good market to invest in? In my world, it is not. It's not bad. I actually have investors coming for Boise to work with me in other areas. Why is it not a good market, in my opinion, for my type of investment? Well, the economy there is not so strong. It's not weak, but it's not Dallas strong. It's not Phoenix strong, Nashville strong. It's just smaller populations, smaller economy. And for me, that's a sign of lack of resilience. The 2008 crash is the resilience car, meaning 
if the next crash or when, not if the next crash is coming, what can I do to mitigate? And that's, I call it the resilient. And I always ask myself that question. I've been waiting for another crash since 2008. Truly said, I've been planning for a crash since 2008. I thought when COVID hit us, March, April of 2020, we are finally getting the crash. And I was on a monthly basis, was checking with all my property manager on rent collection, on issues and problems. And I felt my resilient, loving investing formula is going through a stress test and it survived it unbelievably well. I mean, I am blown away. You know, it's one thing to plan for something. Something happens, you're going through a stress test and surviving it well, it's a whole different level. Like for me, it's like, mind-blowing. I didn't expect it to survive it so well, and it did. And I'm glad. And that's what I mean when I think coming back to your question, I am scarred to my core DNA about resilience. And resilience is the question, what are the chances of this area, metro location, to survive the next crash? Not if there will be a crash, but the next crash. Let's say Dallas forward, 7 million people populations, very strong economy. In my opinion, has a very good chance of surviving the next crash. And maybe Cape Coral, Florida, which is five, 600,000 people, I wouldn't even call it a metro. I think if this is such a strong place to survive the next crash. So I don't know. But if I have to bet, my bet goes to the resilient factor with Dallas as an example. I love it. So keeping that resilience factor, seeing where they're growing, where the people are, where they're moving, and, and that ability to survive that next downturn. Exactly. I really, really exactly. like that. Tell us a little bit more you know, about how the listeners can get a hold of you. Yeah, absolutely. So my web identity is simply do it. Everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, website, emails, everything is simply where Facebook, even YouTube, it's all simply do it. So anywhere you write, simply do it with real estate, you'll probably find us. But our website is simplydoit.net. Our general email is meet, like meeting, but meet, M-E-E-T, at simplydoit.net. You can reach out. Anyone who's interested, we have a very well-polished, and we're always improving it, process to investing, to analyzing. We have vetted teams in multiple U.S. metros, carefully, carefully vet the teams on the ground that are good with finding the type of properties we're looking for, good with management. Most of all the property managers we work with in different parts of the country, we become their biggest account very quickly. They want to service us better. They want to give us better fees. They look at our clients because they belong to their biggest account, simply do it. Somewhat of a VIP and the clients feel that. So we get more perks, like an umbrella that helps people who feel that the property managers are always bad people to feel a bit more secure and safe when they're working under such a, a strong buying power. It's all buying power umbrella. Absolutely. So yeah. simply do it. That's the web identity. We'll link all of those in the show notes. Simply do it.net. Go check out Danny's website. Go say hi to Danny. Also in the show notes, if you haven't already, download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow through Multifamily Real Estate. Thank you so much, everybody out there listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.